Chapter 15. Sight for those who see not. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see might see, and that those who see might be blinded. John 9.39. The great day of judgment is still to come. God in infinite patience waits to be gracious, giving men time to repent and to be reconciled to Him. Jesus came into the world for judgment, but not for that last and eternally unchangeable judgment which awaits us all. That hour will still arrive, we have the declaration of God's word for it. Scripture, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He shall sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Matthew 25, 31-32. There is no question as to this sure fact. Even if many more centuries should pass away, the dreaded judgment will be held in due time. Scripture, The Lord is not late concerning His promise, as some count lateness, but is patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. He is full of tenderness and patience so he waits. But the vision will come, it will not tarry. Settle this in your minds, and live as in the presence of that sobering court of justice. Even though the day of judgment is not right now, our Lord Jesus is still carrying on a form of judgment in the world. His fan is in His hand, and He will thoroughly purge His floor. He sits as a refiner, separating His silver from the dross. His cross has revealed the thoughts of many hearts, and everywhere His gospel is acting as a discoverer, as a separator, and as a test by which men may judge themselves, if they are willing. It is a very happy situation, when a man is willing to accept the Lord's judgment day by day, and permits the law itself to judge him, before the lawgiver has to come before the court. Paul says of those who gladly receive a present judgment, but being judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians 11.32. Saints are judged now by a fatherly discipline, so that they won't be judged later by judicial condemnation. Our Lord's great design in coming into the world is the salvation of men. Scripture, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3.17. But in order to receive that salvation, it's necessary for men to know the truth about themselves, and to take up a truthful position before God, because God will not endure a lie, neither will He save men based on lies. He will deal with all His creatures according to truth. If He condemns them, it will be because righteousness requires it. If He saves them, it will be because He has found a way where mercy and truth have joined together. So then, everywhere throughout the world, wherever Christ comes, by His gospel and the consequences of it, a judgment is going on. Men are set before the judgment seat of their Savior. They are tested, tried, exposed, and declared. As soon as light comes into the world, it begins to judge the darkness. It wouldn't even be known to be darkness if the light had not revealed the contrast. Where the gospel comes, some hearts receive it at once and are judged to be honest and good ground. 
men who are willing to accept the gospel and come to the light, so that their deeds may be seen clearly that they are performed in God. Other hearts immediately hate the truth, because they are the children of darkness. Therefore, men loved darkness more than the light, because their deeds were evil. John 3.19. So you see how, without it being the main intention of Christ's coming into the world, it still becomes a secondary effect. It's related to the purpose of His coming, that His very appearance among the sons of men should judge them. In this mirror, they see their own appearance and discover their spots. By this guideline, they test their own uprightness and see how far they lean towards evil. Under the sign of the gospel, the Lord has set up a public wayhouse. Can you picture the great scales? They are correct to a hair. Come forward and test yourselves. Even in this banqueting house of love, truth marks her own and sets her brand on counterfeits. God has a fire of trial in Zion and a furnace of test in Jerusalem. I pray that the gospel may have a dividing effect in this house. Wherever Jesus Christ comes, the most evident effects follow. I have come into this world that those who do not see might see, and that those who see might be blinded. Christ is not indifferent to those in the right or to those in the wrong. Whoever you may be, if you hear the gospel, it will have some effect upon you. It will either be to your soul the savour of life unto life, or else the savour of death unto death. 2 Corinthians 2.16 It will be antidote or poison, curing or killing, softening the conscience or searing it. It will either make you see, or, because you imagine that you see, its very brightness will make you blind, like Saul of Tarsus, who cried, I could not see for the clarity of that light. Acts 22.11 You cannot be indifferent to the gospel if you hear it. None of you can escape the fact that Christ said, For judgment I have come. And that judgment must take place in your mind and conscience whether you are willing or not. This coming and judgment have a wonderfully clear and visible effect. We're not talking about a little improvement or a slight alteration. It is the turning of things upside down, so that those who do not see might see, and that those who see might be blinded. It is a very violent change from light to darkness, or from darkness to light. In either case, it's an absolute reversal of a condition. The gospel will do just that for you. If you live without it, it will make you die. If you believe that you are dead without it, it will make you live. Scripture, He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent empty away. Luke 1, 52-53 There will always be some effect upon the human mind wherever Christ comes, and this effect will be a very evident one by changing all the conditions as much as if the laws of nature were reversed. The Lord's approach to a soul will lift it into the light more and more gloriously, or it will plunge it into deeper darkness, deeper responsibility, deeper guilt, and consequently deeper misery. We can free from guilt that faithful preacher of the Word who, in the middle of his sermon, suddenly stopped and cried, Woe is me! What am I doing? 
I am preaching Christ to you, and while I hope some of you are receiving Him, and that I am leading you toward heaven, many others of you are rejecting Him, and in this way I am increasing your responsibility and your guilt. So I am doing evil instead of good to you. Woe is me! God help His poor servant! I have often felt the sweet preaching of the gospel to be bitter work. I am not surprised that dark thoughts come over the diligent preacher. I wish those who hear him would join with him in his anxieties. May we unite in deep concern. I will pray for God's blessing upon every one of you, and you pray that no word of mine would be unprofitable to you. When preacher and hearer work together the same way, the chariot wheels move to music. That music is salvation. Come, Spirit of the living God, and make it so. That those who see not may see. Christ has come so that those who see not may see. It's a very wonderful thing about the gospel that it's meant for people who think themselves most unsuited for it, and most undeserving of it. It is sight for those who see not. The other day an anxious friend gave me a description of himself which was enough to make a man horrified to hear it. With many sighs and tears he described to me the condition of a man lost by nature and by practice, and unable to help himself in any way. When he had completed his story, I let him finish it and touch it up with a few extra strokes of black, I took him by the hand and said, I am sure that you are one of those whom Christ came into the world to save. You have given me the most accurate description possible of one of God's elect when aroused to see his natural state before the most holy God. You are one of those for whom the gospel was intended. I spoke boldly because I knew that I was only stating the truth. I know Jesus Christ came into the world to open men's eyes since he's opened the eyes of some of those around me because they have bright eyes which smile on me as I speak and seem to say, No optometrist is needed here. I look all around and I see nothing for the great opener of eyes to do until I pause at the pew over there, and there sits a blind man. There are one or two here whose natural eyes have been sealed in darkness for many years. I say to them, If Jesus Christ has come to open anybody's eyes, he has come to open the eyes of the blind. It must be so. Infirmity and disability are necessary to prepare for the receipt of the blessing of sight. Suppose I heard that Jesus had come to make lame men leap like a deer. Well, I would look around and say that he didn't come for that young girl, because she can skip like a gazelle and run like a fawn. He did not come for that young man, because I just saw him on his bicycle flying over the ground as swiftly as a swallow skims the stream. Neither did the healer of the lame come for that strong brother over there, who enjoys a quick long walk. But just now a lame man limped down the aisle on his crutch. Didn't you hear his heavy movement? Well, if Jesus Christ came to heal lameness, that's the kind of person that he had his eye upon. When I hear about a charity breakfast being distributed, I never imagine that the gathered assembly will consist of members of the houses of lords and commons, or of the royal family. I don't suppose that even one of those honorable elites will be present at a festival with beggars unless they desire to observe. 
If I went to a charity breakfast and saw some of their kind with bowls and spoons, I would say, Get out! You are not the people that ought to be here. You have no right to be here. The richer and more respectable you are, the less right you have to be sitting at a meal that was meant for the poorest of the poor. Now, turn the parable around. If you are blinded in your spiritual sight, Christ came to open your eyes. If you are lame so that you cannot run to Him, Christ came to restore you. If you are as poor as spiritual poverty can make you, as poor as sin can make you, and if you are as unable to help yourselves as the dead in the graves, then remember this great truth. For the Christ, when we were yet weak, in His time died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. It sounds strange, doesn't it? But it's true. Christ died for our sins, not for our virtues. It's not your completeness, but your incompleteness, which entitles you to the Lord Jesus. It's not your wealth, but your poverty. It's not what you have, but what you don't have. It's not what you can boast of, but what you can mourn over, that qualifies you to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came with the intention that those who cannot see might see. Blind eyes, I have good news for you. Souls that sit in darkness and in the valley of the shadow of death, my feet are beautiful to you, because I bring you glad tidings of exceeding joy. Light for the blind, joy for those in despair, and grace for the guilty. I want you to consider the blind man of whom we were hearing in the narrative just now as a sort of model blind man, the kind of blind man that Jesus Christ delights to look upon and to whom he rejoices to give sight. This blind man knew he was blind. He never had any doubt about that. He had never seen a ray of light, and yet he believed that he was blind. It's not as easy a matter as some of you may think, because I've met with thousands of blind men who laugh at the idea of sight, because they've had no experience of it. They refuse to believe more than they can understand or feel. This sightless beggar had to be told that there was such a thing as sight, but once he was told, he believed it. All his experience after that point confirmed the unhappy fact. Once he was fully persuaded that it was true, he had taken up the proper position for a poor blind man. He sat by the wayside and asked for alms. The man whom Christ delights to bless is the man who knows his right place and is willing to occupy it. He doesn't conceal his blindness and talk as if he carried a telescope around with him and gazed all night at the stars. Many of you unconverted people think a good deal too much of yourselves. You will have to come down a good many notches before you'll be in your true places. You are so excellent and so intelligent and so humble and so well-meaning and so everything that you ought to be, are you not? Salvation will never come to you. The Spirit of peace will never dwell in a nest which reeks of pride. In your own false judgment, you are within an inch of being perfect, whereas the Lord knows that you are not even half that distance from hell if His justice would be let loose upon you. You dream fine dreams in your conceit, believing that you have kept the law from your youth up, and that you are abundantly religious and excellent and admirable and all that you ought to be. As long as you think of yourselves in this way, the blessing is hindered and kept away. 
You self-exalting ones are not the kind Jesus came to bless. He said himself, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5.32 Perhaps someone here is saying, I don't understand it. I can't seem to grasp this gospel. I barely know my own condition. I know that I'm unhappy. I know that I'm not right, but I can't describe myself or see myself correctly. As to this faith of which I hear so much, and this atoning blood which seems so mighty to cleanse, I seem as if I can't understand it or grasp it. Unfortunately, I am so blind. You speak the truth, my dear friend, and in that way you are like the blind man in the gospel. I pray that in the same way Jesus healed him, he will also heal you. I pray with strong confidence, too, because my Lord has certain established ways. When he comes in contact with certain situations, he acts in the same method with them. Jesus is not arbitrary. He has a way of procedure from which he does not deviate. So when he comes in contact with a situation such as yours, he does the same with each instance of it, to the praise and glory of his name. Take up the position of a blind beggar and sit down and cry for light and healing, and you will certainly have them. This blind man not only believed that he was blind and knew it, but he also had a sincere desire to be enlightened. It wasn't grief to him that Jesus had come so that he might see. It brought him an intense joy to hear that Jesus had opened the eyes of other blind men. And even though he may have feared that his case was one too out of the ordinary, for since the world began it was not heard that any man had opened the eyes of one who was born blind, yet he was pleased to find that Jesus Christ had stopped, looked upon him, and was placing clay upon his eyes. He felt a gladness and an enthusiasm in his heart when he was commanded to go to Siloam and wash. His whole manhood accepted the Saviour's act and deed. He surrendered to the surgery of the Christ with the full consent of his being. Are you hungering after Christ? O soul, if you know your need for Him and have a strong desire after Him, the heavenly work has begun. If there is within your spirit a burning longing to be reconciled to God by the death of His Son, your cure is already half accomplished. Some of you have written me letters lately which show the actions of your hearts. These are still blind movements, but they all grope for the light. Poor souls, what hope I have for you! Especially for him who with a broken heart has begged for our prayers these many months and still hasn't come out to light and liberty. I am so glad to see the strength, intensity, and agony of your desires. Your unbelief grieves me, but your eagerness encourages me. I pray to God that you would trust my Lord Jesus Christ and rest in him. Still, I am glad to think that you cannot rest without him. I am glad that you can't be quiet until he quiets you. No pillow will ever ease your head but my Lord's bosom. No hand but his can ever heal your bleeding wounds. I am glad that this is true, because the type of sinner you are is well described by heart. A sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Ghost hath made him so. The Spirit of God has set apart the blind soul to be a monument of the Illuminator's skill. He has made the lost soul to be the place where Christ can set his foot and display all the splendor of his love.
This man is also a model to every other blind man, because he was very obedient. As soon as the Lord said to him, Go, wash, he went. There was no question with him about Siloam. He had no Abana or Farpar, 2 Kings 5.12, which he preferred to that pool. He was fully submissive. He stood still and let the master put the clay on his eyes. It didn't look like an operation that could do him any good, but he believed that Jesus was a prophet, so he waited and let him do whatever he pleased with him. I am so glad when I see a poor soul offering a full surrender to Jesus. Some of you heard last time about the sweetness of yielding yourselves up to Jesus. How I wish you could feel it now. You will be a great deal more passive than active in your conversion. He will give you quickness of foot after He has given you life. But at the beginning of the new life, the first thing is to own your death and to be willing to receive life completely from Him in His own way. The Scriptures illustrate this. But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father. We are the clay, and Thou our potter, such that we all are the work of Thy hands. Isaiah 64, 8. What can the clay do to help the potter? Nothing, except that it must be pliable and yield to his hand. The clay must not be stiff and hard and unwilling to be molded, or it will be set aside. Be submissive to the saving hand. When you are brought into such a state of heart that you are willing to be anything or nothing, so that you may be saved, dear soul, you are near to the kingdom. If you can say, I would give my life to be saved, or, if the Lord refuses anything at my hands, I will gladly consent to be nothing if He will only save me, then you are on the doorstep of grace. I would so completely yield myself up to Christ so that I only feel what He would have me feel, and nothing more, to be what He would have me be, to do what He would have me do, and nothing beyond. If you are submissive in this way, I will tell you to take heart and have hope. The Spirit of God is at work in you. You are very near to Christ. Believe on Him, trust in Him, and live, for He has come with the intention that those who cannot see may see. Stop at that sacred purpose of amazing grace and let your despair fly away. This is our first point. This blind man becomes our model. Next, we notice that this kind of man owns that he does see. He has been so thoroughly convinced of his blindness that when he gets his sight, he owns it with glad surprise. To him, the newly given light is such a blessing that he is overjoyed with it and gladly cries, Now I see. Some people don't know whether they are converted or not. I hope that they are saved, but such people are not generally of very much use. We have to spend our time and strength in taking care of them and comforting them and enabling them to rise above sheer despair. But the man who has been totally blind and has known it, when he gets sight, is equally sure that he sees. You cannot make such a man doubt the greatness and truthfulness of the change. He comes out and says, One thing I know, that having been blind, now I see. I delight in clear, sharp-cut conversions. I don't condemn those dear friends who come into light by slow degrees. Far, far, far from it. I delight in them, 
But still, for a useful testimony and for a change of character, there is nothing like a conversion which is like life from the dead, and like turning from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God. The old-fashioned convert is the man for me. He knows something and holds fast by what he knows. His is experiential knowledge, and you cannot beat it out of him. I like to think of some of you utterly blind people who cannot help yourselves at all, because when you receive the light you will know it, and you won't hesitate to come out and say so. In your case, the poor preacher will not be robbed of his wages, as he so often is when he saves a soul by God's grace, but never hears of it. The gospel will not be deprived of its witnesses. The church will not be left without her helpers, and the Lord will not be robbed of the reward of glory which is His due. We expect grand testimonies for Jesus from you blind men when the Lord causes you to see. When the blind man's eyes were opened, he began to defend the man who opened his eyes. He did it well, too. He said, Indeed, this is a marvelous thing that ye do not know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. On he went with arguments which confounded both the scribes and the Pharisees. When the Lord takes a big blind sinner and washes him and opens his eyes, then the man will not allow Christ to be spoken against. He will speak up for his Lord and Master because he can't help it. You won't find him mute, as some professors are. Some of your cultured Christians do not speak for Christ more than once in six months, and then it will be better for them to have held their tongues, because they speak so half-heartedly. Here is a man with an open mouth, and he speaks right from his heart, under the guidance of the Spirit of God. He is not ashamed to own what the Lord has done for him. We want many recruits of this sort. The present-day church wants men and women who are so thoroughly and certainly converted that when they speak about Christ they speak positively and with a power which none can deny or resist. I think I hear you poor, darkened, desolate one, crying out, Oh, sir, if the Lord were to save me, I wouldn't be ashamed to own it. If He ever brings me in among His people, I will tell them all about it. I will tell the very devils in hell what sovereign grace has done for me. Oh, my poor brother, you are Christ's man. You are the kind of man He delights to bless. You poor, devil-dragged sinners who are almost at your wit's end and would even take away your own lives if it were not a most horrible sin, you are the very ones the Lord looks upon with mercy. He said Himself, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are broken, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Luke 4, 18-19. Only trust yourselves in His dear hands, and believe that He can, and that He will save you, and you shall be saved. Then I know that you will own His name, defend His truth, glory in His cross, and live to His praise. Those who are blind will be made to see and then the Lord Jesus shall be the Lord of their hearts, the Master of their lives, and the Beloved of their souls. The best thing about this man was that when his eyes were opened he desired to know more. When Jesus Christ spoke to him, saying, Dost thou believe in the Son of God? He asked, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? 
When he found that the Son of God was the same divine one who had opened his eyes, we read that at once he worshipped him. Notice that at the end of John 9:38 we read, And he worshipped him. He was no Unitarian. He saw the Son of God in the man who spoke with him, and he reverently adored him. If our Lord Jesus had not been God, he would have told the man to rise, and he would have torn his garments in horror at the very idea of receiving divine worship. Instead, our Lord used this example as a proof that the man's eyes were opened, and immediately said that he had come for that very purpose, that those who were blind might see. Friends, if you have not seen Jesus of Nazareth to be God, you have seen nothing. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of Him. Until you get to know that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, exalted on high to give repentance and forgiveness of sin, you still need the scales to fall from your eyes, because the eternal light has not come to you. Once someone receives the true light from God, he will know the Lord Jesus not as a delegated God or a glorified man, but as God over all, blessed forever. He will have a God to save him and nobody else, because who could save us but the Almighty? I wouldn't trust a tenth of my soul with ten thousand Gabriels. I could not be at peace with it anywhere but in Him that is able to save completely, even that same God who made everything that was made. So I have shown you how this model blind man is the very man to whom the Lord Jesus will give sight, because the results that follow are glorifying to Christ. Are you such a person? Then be comforted. But how is it that such blind men come to see clearly? The main reason is sovereign grace, but still there are other reasons. First, there is no conceit in them to hinder Christ. It's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ, it is our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ, it is our supposed light that holds back His hand. It is easier to save us from our sins than from our righteousness. Our self-righteousness is that hideous boa constrictor which seems to coil itself around and around our spirit, and to crush all the life out of us that would receive the gospel of the grace of God. He who thinks that he knows will never learn. He who is blind and thinks that he sees will remain content in the darkness all his life. Dear friends, if you know that you are in the dark, a darkness that can be felt, if it seems to horribly cling to you so that you cannot get rid of it, if you seem unable to even obtain a ray of light, then you are in just the right state to receive the eternal light from the Lord Jesus Christ. The next reason is that people such as this always refuse to speculate. They want certainties. When a man feels his own blindness and spiritual death, if you discuss with him the fine new nothings of modern theology, he says, I don't want them. They don't matter to me. There's no comfort in them for a lost soul. A poor thief was converted some time ago, and he was taken to hear a certain preacher who is exceedingly broad in his views. When the thief came out, he said to the friend who took him, If what that man said was true, it would be a fine thing for me, because I could do whatever I want and still get off easy. But I know that it's a lie. Therefore, I don't want to have anything more to do with him or his doctrine. A sinner like me deserves to be damned forever. 
and it's no use for anybody to tell me the contrary. Therefore, I want a Christ that can save me from eternal damnation. If this man's Christ only saves men from the little bit of damnation that he has preached, he's no good to me. That was a very sensible observation. We all need a Savior from eternal damnation, and we don't care about those little saviors from a little hell which are so often proclaimed today. We have a lot of sham sinners around, and we have a number of ministers who preach a sham Savior and a sham salvation. And the sham sinners like it this way. But if Christ really deals with you, pulls you down to the last course, and digs your foundations up, then you will want a Christ who will begin with you on no terms but those of free grace. You will want a power that will work the whole miracle of salvation for you from beginning to end. If you are utterly without strength, that makes you reachable by the strength of grace. When a man gives up his pretty speculations and just sticks to the old teaching from the divine word, he wants a great Savior to save him from a great hell, because he understands that he has been a great sinner and greatly deserves the infinite wrath of God. If your salvation is too big for you, that will be a great deal better than getting one that is too small for you. However, if you think that the salvation of Jesus is too great for you, it shows that you are not the man for whom it is meant. Our fear is that you are one of those who see but will be made blind. If you feel your blindness and cry out to God about it, you are the man for whom the sight-giving Savior died. Again, people who are thoroughly blind are the kind of people who are glad to lean on God. A man who can see a little doesn't want guidance from someplace else or someone else. He says, No, I don't want it. Take an illustration from myself. I used to be very resistant to wearing glasses for some time because I could almost see without them, and I didn't wish to be an old man too soon. But now that I can't read my notes at all without wearing glasses, I put them on without a moment's hesitation, and I don't care whether you think me old or not. So, when a man comes to feel thoroughly guilty, he doesn't mind depending on God. If you sinners think that you can do a little without God, or only need just a little help from God, then you will keep away from the Lord Jesus. But when you come to this, I must perish if Christ is not everything to me, then you will have him, because he never refused a soul that came to him in that style. You may have heard the story of the slave and his master, who were both under conviction of sin at the same time. Almost the next evening the slave found joy and peace through believing, but his master was under conviction for months. So he said to his slave one day, Sam, you know we were both pricked to the heart at that meeting, and here you are rejoicing in Christ, and I am still doubting and despairing. What can be the reason for this? The slave said, You see, master, Jesus Christ come along and brought a fine robe of glorious righteousness. He said to Sam, Here's a robe for you. I looked at myself and saw all rags from head to foot, so I took the robe and put it on directly. I was so glad to have it. Jesus said the same thing to you, Master, but you said, My coat is very respectable. I think I can make it last a little longer. You patched up the hole in the elbow and mended the skirt a little and continued to wear it. Your coat is too good. If your coat was all in rags, like Sam's, you wouldn't wait. You would this very day take the glorious robe of righteousness. 
That is the whole truth of the matter. Some of you are not poor enough to be made rich by Christ. A man said to me the other day, Sir, I've lost hope in myself. Give me your hand, I said. You are on the right road, but I want you to go a little further. I want you to feel that you are too great a fool even to lose hope in yourself. When you cry, I cannot feel my own foolishness like I should, then I think your folly will be ended. I like to hear a man cry, I feel unhappy because I can't feel. I am grieved to think that I can't grieve. I am in agony because I can't get into agony. You are getting right, my brother. You are the sort of man that God will bless. Now, look away from yourself, agony and all, and just trust in Jesus Christ, who is able to save completely those who come to God by Him. Own your blindness, and you will find the light streaming into your eyes. Since you are content and willing to lean wholly on God, the Lord will guide you into peace and joy. What a mercy it is when we are brought to our last resort and are compelled to hide in Jesus because we have no other shelter. Tis perfect poverty alone that sets the soul at large. While we can call one might our own, we get no full discharge. But let our debts be what they may, however great or small, as soon as we have naught to pay, our Lord forgives us all. Once more, our Lord Jesus Christ delights to work in those who are thoroughly blind in order to give them sight. It is His pleasure, His royal recreation. I know that a true man is never as glad as when he has helped those who want help. The plague and worry of this London life to some of us is that so many ask us for help who should never be helped at all, except by the policeman and the jailer. They cringe and fawn and make up lying stories. Then when we say, We will visit you to see if it's true, they ask in mighty indignation, Do you think I'm a liar? Don't you believe what I say? I have had to answer, No, I don't believe a word of it, or you would gladly give your address so that we could look into your statements. They don't want to be looked into. That is their horror because it spoils their game. They want to get money without work, and they thirst for an opportunity to get drunk at other people's expense. A true man doesn't like to work among liars and cheats of this kind. It makes him sick and angry. But many men have still been willing to go down to the worst place in horrible London and to do good to those who are really poor and helpless. One doesn't like giving to impostors, but where there is real need, the generous heart is happy to offer aid. Now, you poor soul, you are no impostor. Your need is real. You can say, A poor beggar? Ah, that I am. Does the Lord want to ask about me? I beg him to ask. Search me, O Lord, test me, and know my heart. I know that you will see no righteousness in me. There's nothing in me which I can depend on. I'm a helpless, miserable wretch, unless your infinite mercy comes to me. My Lord Jesus Christ rejoices to work among those such as you. He likes blessing those truly in need. What a joy there is in that great heart of His when He can save souls from the borders of hell, when He can stretch out His hand and snatch them like brands from the fire. He knows that you will love Him as much as that woman did, who had much forgiven, and therefore stood and washed His feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. 
He takes delight in you who can't take any delight in yourselves. To you who are dried up and barren, He will bring living water. He will open rivers in high places for the thirsty ones, and fountains in the midst of a desert for those who faint. I have felt a wonderful satisfaction in feeding a poor, half-starved dog that had no master and nothing to eat. How he looked up with pleasure on my face when he had been fed to the full. Depend on it, the Lord Jesus Christ will take delight in feeding a poor, hungry sinner. You feel like a poor dog, don't you? Then Jesus cares for you. He doesn't care about kings and princes and those great people whose grandeur dazzles those who look upon them, but He cares about poor sinners. If you are nothing, Christ loves you, and He will be everything to you. If you will only come to Him just as you are, with no conditions of any kind except your urgent need and dread of the wrath of God, you may come and be sure of a welcome. Someone said to me this week, I am afraid to come to God because I believe that I am only driven to Him by the motive of fear. Ah, I replied, it was the devil who told you that, because in Hebrews 11, among the first of the great heroes of faith, we read that, By faith Noah, having received revelation of things not seen as yet, with great care prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Hebrews 11, 7. Fear is not a selfish motive. It's a very proper motive for a guilty man to feel. Where else can such poor sinners like us begin except with selfish fear? Don't judge yourself about that. The prodigal went home because he was hungry, and his father did not refuse him admittance. As to its being selfish to fear, it would be more selfish to defy your God. You should not say it's too selfish of a motive. Why, what but a selfish motive can be expected from such a selfish wretch as you are? A boy has been rebelling against his father, and left his home in a rage, swearing that he will never go back. His father sends him a letter, which says, Return, everything is forgiven. Only confess your fault, and I will restore you to the family and treat you as lovingly as ever. The boy reads this letter and says, It's very kind of you, my father. I think I will go home. But a wicked companion says, Then you are going to eat humble pie. It will be very selfish of you after everything you have said about not backing down. Are you going to knuckle under to your father? It is the very devil tempting the boy, isn't it? And so it was the devil who whispered to my friend that it would be wrong to turn to the Lord through fear. Fear is a blessed thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9 10. Even slavish fear of God is a great deal better thing than assumption. O you poor blind one, look to Christ and live. I was about to say, you dead ones, come. And I do say it, because God says it. Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and the Christ shall shine upon thee. Ephesians 5.14 Someone says, What's the use of talking in this way to dead people? My dear friends, I don't suppose that it would be of any use for you to do so, unless you are sent by God on such an errand. But I am as much sent to preach to the dry bones as Ezekiel was when he stood in the valley and said, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Ezekiel 37, 4. In the name of the eternal God, I say, You guilty sinners, fly to Christ and live. 
Come along, you who are the very worst in your own opinion, you who are on the brink of hell. The Lord said, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no one else. Isaiah 45.22 He will not cast you away, but he will receive you now. May God grant that you come for Jesus' sake. Amen.